Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Android Central podcast. My name is Shruti Shaker. I am the managing editor here at Android Central, and I have my lovely guest today, Jerry Hildenbrand. Hello, hello. Howdy. How are you? I'm really tired. I'm having such a weird day today, so I'm excited about this podcast recording. And I've got my good old friend, Nick Sutrick. Hello. Jerry said howdy, and now I'm trying to channel my inner Buzz Lightyear, but I can't think of any lines. <laughs> it's okay. Well, I'm sure you'll think of a lot of other lines for all the things that we have to talk about today. So why don't we get right into it? Because we've got a lot of things to talk about. Okay, so Nick, you wrote, Wear OS 3 finally fixes the problems Android watches have had for years. And part of that comes from the fact that you got a Pixel watch over the holidays for Christmas. And you kind of wrote about your experience with the Pixel watch and how Wear OS 3 has sort of changed in your eyes. But contrastly, um, Derek, and I, I want to talk both of these about both of these articles sort of together as opposed to, um, one after the other because they work together in a way. So Derek wrote an article. I'm wary of this Wear OS waiting game where he basically is fed up <laughs> with Wear OS. So let's, let's talk about this. Okay. Nick, what were, what were your thoughts here? All right. So I think if you take these two and and you look at the the context of them, they they do actually make sense together. And here's why I think that. So the Pixel Watch and the Galaxy Watch, no matter if you pick the four or five, um, they are substantially better uh, than pretty much any other Wear OS experience you're going to get. And from what I can tell, that's mainly because when Google built Wear OS 3 with Samsung, they specifically made it for Samsung's Exynos processors. And now that I have Wear OS 3 on a few other watches that are powered by Qualcomm processors, the difference to me is really, really obvious. Like when you use a Galaxy Watch 3, or I'm sorry, a Galaxy Watch 4 or 5, or a Pixel Watch, let me get those names right, <laughs> they, they work like you would expect them to, right? They, they are smooth, they run very quickly, they launch apps very quickly. I tap something on the watch and it's essentially instant. Like, you know, I don't expect this thing to be the speed of a Galaxy, you know, Fold 4. That's a lot more money we're talking, right? This, and this is also still a wearable device that needs to be much smaller than a phone, have much different power requirements. But even with all that, this is a way better experience than we've had before. And even things in the past that have been basically unusable, like, Google Assistant has been unusable essentially since they tried to put it on Wear OS. That actually works in Wear OS 3. You hold down the button, Assistant comes up, you ask it, and essentially as you're talking, the words are coming up on the screen. There's no three, four, five second delay and all of them pop up at once. I've had a lot of these other issues with a lot of other Wear OS watches. And I feel like the common denominator here is Qualcomm. And I think generally Qualcomm makes excellent chips, but on the wearable front, it feels like we've sort of always said this without directly saying it, maybe because we didn't want to piss Qualcomm off. I don't know. But and and also because what are your other options? Samsung doesn't really have its processors in other watches like you don't go buy a fossil watch and it's got an Exynos processor in it. They're Pretty much all the other ones are. Powered I've always by wondered why that is too. I I do too, and and now, I I really wish that 
with the current environment that we would see more manufacturers getting those processors. And I don't even know if that's a possibility. It'd be fun to go talk to somebody and ask. Well, that would be up to Samsung. They'd have to want to sell them. Right. And I would assume if somebody approaches them, you know, again, this is not Samsung Mobile that makes Galaxy phones. This is right the company within Samsung that's its own entity and creates processors. Like, they don't really care who the customer is, right? Just like Samsung doesn't care that Apple is using their displays. Yeah, m- most people don't understand Samsung buys Samsung processors right. from Samsung. Yes. <laughs> like, this is just a company making another business transaction. This is not, like, them necessarily playing favorites. Now, I think in the Wear OS conversation, there are definitely favorites being played in that Wear OS 3 was very clearly designed for Exynos processors, and you can tell that when you use them. And, and I, I believe that particular Exynos processor was designed for Wear OS 3. I think the work was done in tandem. Yeah, but but even even if it wasn't, like the, the one in the Pixel Watch, right? The thing's five years old. Who knows if Google even had Wear OS 3 on the brain five years ago? Well, I, I want to believe they had an idea of what they wanted five years ago. Maybe not. Yeah, I, I don't know. But, but in any case, that processor, which everyone was like, oh my gosh, the Pixel Watch is launching with a five-year-old processor. Well, guess what? <laughs> it, out, it outperforms everything Qualcomm has ever put out. So... <laughs> In that case, a number is just a number. Who cares? It still works. And it works way better. Okay, so how do you feel about what Derek wrote then? Like, do you think that um, people are still waiting for the next iteration of Wear OS 3 to 4? I mean, like, how do you feel about it? I I think Derek, and I really, I wish he was on here to talk about this, but I think Derek really likes Fossil's designs and Fossil's watches. You know, that includes Fossil branded ones, Scoggin ones, you know, and any of their like sub brands or associated companies. Um, And I feel like he wants one of those to to perform like his Galaxy Watch 5 does, because I know he uses the Galaxy Watch 5 um, as a daily these days. Um, And Qualcomm's next wearable chip, the W5 Plus Gen 1. That was announced last summer, and I think to his point, so far we've only seen one watch launch at that thing, and that was an Oppo watch that's only available in China. So, you know, there are obviously a lot of people that live in China, but as far as the international market goes, we don't have a single watch with Qualcomm's latest processor and probably won't for a while. And who knows what Mobvoi is doing? They promised one with that chip at the end of last year. And I mean, it's only the end of January, so it's not like it's been six months, but we still haven't heard anything, right? Yeah, and I think a lot of people were assuming that we would hear at least a few watches with that update um, when the Pixel Watch was announced, right? Because because even up until then, we had barely heard any any news on anything. And, And worse yet, we saw watches just recently announced that are still using the old 4100 plus chipset why why just why i don't know it's so weird it's very strange like these aren't budget watches it it has to be a business contract decision well what no i was going to ask is it a business transaction decision or is it a a chip shortage shortage 
decision. I suppose that's possible. Maybe they manufactured too many 4100s and they're just giving companies a killer deal on them. That could still be a business contract decision. Qualcomm takes up all the time to manufacture processors because they've had companies con- under contract to buy more processors than, you know, another company, which I guess in the wearable space is Samsung and Apple. I, I, I guess in any case, right now, if you want a good smartwatch, on the Android side, your best bet is Pixel Watch or Galaxy Watch. And yeah, get a Galaxy Watch or Galaxy Watch Four. You can pick one up. I saw them for like 159 bucks around Christmas, and that's going to be better than anything else you can buy except for the newer, you know, Pixel and Galaxy Watch. Yeah, which you'll spend twice as much for, if not more. Right. So definitely, Galaxy Watch Four, I think, is the winner right now. For that, that several reasons, but to Android yeah. smartwatches, absolutely. You know, I agree with both Derek and Nick here. And after a year with the Galaxy Watch Four, I I wrote something about it. I realized that even this isn't enough to save Wear OS three. And what I meant by that is this is this is better than anything we've ever seen before. This works exactly like it should be. You know, it, it's working the way I, I, I believe it's working the way Google wanted it to work. Uh, it just wasn't enough for me. Uh, and I also questioned when is this going to happen for everybody else that's making Android Wear watches? Because, you know, maybe another company will have better ideas. So I, I see, you know, the, the both, both points of view. And I think to your point there, too, um, I believe your your title was something like the Galaxy Watch 4 was a commercial success, but it was a flop or so, something to that effect, right? Yeah, it, you know, something, yeah, even it can't fix Wear OS 3 or something like that. I, I forget what it was. I think a lot of us thought that the Galaxy Watch 4 was going to be the launching point yep. for Wear OS 3, like in a real way, not the way we've seen it in the last year and a half where, well, now we got basically three main watches that have it on there whoop de doo like this is this was not the relaunch we were expecting even if wear os 3 is great we're just not really seeing it roll out to these other watches in a way like we wanted it to i wonder if google expected this to be a new launching point and they expected everyone else including qualcomm to get on board and show up and say hi google we want to build our next processor with your help to make it run as good as what you've got going with samsung and, you know, then you've got all these other companies that are using it and they all work great. And that just didn't happen. I mean, it's possible. I, I don't know. It's hard to, it's, that's like, that's a very interesting thought, but it's hard to tell, like, if that's the case. You know, a wondering thing. We will never know the answer. Right. And, and it's also tough to tell sometimes if Google ever had a plan, because <laughs> a lot of times it doesn't feel like they do. And I know that's, that's silly to say out loud, because of course, if this is a company spending money, they have to put forth some kind of plan. Most companies don't just let you spend money. Their plan is to track your usage habits in your location by putting a device on your wrist. That was their plan. This is Google. Fair. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, okay, let's take a really quick break and we'll be right back. Do you know how much your subscriptions cost? 
Most Americans think they spend around $80 a month on subscriptions when the actual total is closer to $200. If you don't know exactly how much you're spending every month, you need Rocket Money. Rocket Money, formerly known as Truebill, is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. Stop throwing your money away, cancel unwanted subscriptions, and manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash ACP. That's rocketmoney.com slash ACP. Rocketmoney.com slash ACP. Okay, so... um. I want to talk about a couple of interesting things that has been happening in the world of AI recently. Again, two articles that I think, you know, kind of go really nicely hand in hand with each other. Um, I wrote an article about ChatGPT titled ChatGPT could help Google more than Microsoft, ironically. Um, and then, uh, Jerry, you wrote an article that said that's titled Google made the right choice not diving into consumer AI bots. So, uh, you know, obviously there's a lot happening with, um, you know, Google and, and chat GPT and what's happening. So basically with, with chat GPT, we all know that Microsoft has now invested. They've confirmed they've invested money into open AI, which is the company that created chat GPT. Um, and my article, like I was joking around with someone, but it's basically a Daniel Rubino opinion piece, <laughs> so, but I love it. It's great. Um, and I just, I, I think it's super interesting. I think that like there is a possibility for, Microsoft to compete with, um, with Google, but I think it's going to take some time for that to happen and how it's going to do it. It has to be, you know, done in a very different way. Um, and it has to be more conversational. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on this, guys? Do you think that Microsoft actually has a possibility of competing with Google? If they throw 99% of chat GPT away, and just use the the LLM that's already been trained. Sure, that's exactly what Google does now. That would make Bing search a thousand times better. Having a you know a, a large language model that's already been trained on everything on the internet up to a certain point. Uh, if they try to use Chat GPT as a smart assistant for your search, no, it's going to fail because Chat GPT is everything except smart. Yeah, well, also because I think, I mean, I've been doing a lot of TV and radio interviews about this. And I think one of the things that people are misunderstanding is how smart is ChatGPT. And, and really the thing is, is yeah, it does have a lot of information and it's really cool. But the problem is that there's a lot of inaccuracies that are coming out with it. There's this possibility that, um, you know, it, it only has a certain amount of information up until 2020 or 2021. And it's not, it, it doesn't have all the information, you know, that you, you could want after that date. Um, but the part that, you know, where it could be inaccurate is something that I think a lot of people don't realize is the case. Right. And it is, you have to understand how it works. You, you let's pretend it's a, a monkey at a typewriter. You say something to chat GPT. It look, takes what you says and then it Googles it and then it gives you a response. Uh, you know, it copies and pastes what the first search it was. That's basically what chat GPT is doing. It's, it's 
using text, it's found on the internet that the AI thinks is the answer or, or the correct response to whatever you typed in. And it's, there's no intelligence involved in artificial intelligence. It only repeats what it has been told to repeat. It, it seems magical and it's fun, but it's, it's not, you do not want to let chat GPT be your search engine unless you don't care if you get the right information that, you know, is actually what you're searching for. Right. How do you think, how do you think it could be accurate? Like, let's say Microsoft does implement ChatGPT into Bing search results. How could Microsoft make it accurate? They can't, but they can use it to do autocomplete. People also ask, were you looking for, this is the correct way to spell it. Those kind of ancillary features that are built into search. Because that's, Google already does that and it works. We, we make fun of the, especially the autocomplete. Sometimes it's insane, but those, that, that works really well. And I'm sure chat GPT, if it doesn't have the ability to already do that really well, it could with just a few tweaks. And let's just be honest. Google does that sort of thing a whole lot better than Bing does. Bing does better image search than Google does. They both services have their, you know, strong points. Uh, Microsoft hopefully correctly realizes this could fix uh, several of the pain points with Bing. And that's how they implement it. That's what I think they're going to do. I, I like what they're talking about as far as how they're going to implement it. So they're saying stuff like, Microsoft has worked on incorporating the language understanding model to provide more useful search results when Outlook email customers look for information in their inboxes. So when they're searching, maybe you don't know exactly what you're searching for, but it's now going to start using GPT to infer what you wanted. And then it'll try to find other relevant stuff, which I think is an excellent way for them to use this. And I think this type of searching will be maybe not paradigm shifting. I'm not sure what the right term is, but like when we first got smart speakers that had Google Assistant in them and you asked it something and it would respond with an answer versus, I found this on the web, you know, like it, it wouldn't give you this stupid link that you then had to go manually do. It would just read back the first response and you were like, oh, that's, it may not be correct, but that's pretty cool, right? Like, <laughs> But isn't that the whole point that, that Jerry is saying, that like it could also affect, um, what is that, the DMCSCA, is that, how, what DMCA is that called? DMCA you talking? Yeah, there you go. Copyrights. And that, yeah, copyrights. And that's how Google and Apple were able to, and, and Alexa too, for that matter, were able to get away with that because they said this, and this is what else I found on the web. Like they don't just give you the first link. Right. And and I think I think them implementing that as like Jerry was saying, sort of an ancillary tool in these existing pieces of software is how they could actually make it feel worthwhile versus I I don't know what people were specifically thinking when they were talking about Microsoft buying ChatGPT and that it would revolutionize Bing. I don't 
I don't think it's necessarily going to revolutionize Bing. I suppose they could morph it into something brand new that is actually paradigm shifting. But for now, I think it's probably just a way for them to to bolster a little bit more information and, and do a better job of pulling related stuff versus actually redefining their search engine or even making a, like Cortana or something a, a useful assistant, right? And and that's sort of, I, I'm so glad you brought that up because I wanted to read a quote that Daniel Rubino wrote to me um, with regards to a virtual assistant or bringing back Cortana in a way that is more efficient. Um, so he says, uh, Alexa is a disaster when you consider its original purpose to facilitate more sales on Amazon. Today, all these services are just glorified alarms, reminders, and basic task fulfillers. Microsoft could bring back this as Cortana 2.0, but I don't think that will happen. Instead, Microsoft will push with the Bing brand to make it feel more organic and natural versus some anthro anthro. I can't say that word, assistant. (laughs) (laughs) I enjoyed the Cortana day design aesthetic and relation to the Halo franchise, but it may be too damaged to bring back. So I think I, I don't necessarily think it's a way of revamping Cortana, at least from what Rubino says. No, I don't think Microsoft wants to revisit Cortana. I agree with them that, 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 just that word is damaged. So many people hated it. They hated you couldn't get rid of it. Uh, I, I, man, whenever I play a game on my Windows PC, I see it listed in the tasks I want to close, and I get pissed off that I can't make it go away for good. <laughs> uh, because it was useless. It didn't, it, it didn't do the very few things that Alexa and Google Assistant does well. It, it, it sucked at those. I, you know, I, I left Siri out on purpose. I haven't used Siri enough to know what I hate about it, but I'm sure there's something. Okay, let's talk about your article, um, Jerry. Google made the right choice not diving into consumer AI bots. What, what drove you to write this article? Uh, really, what drove me is CNET. And we need to be careful about that. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll be careful, but I also want to be honest. CNET done effed up. They let ChatGPT write articles for them and either let the person edit them that maybe didn't know the right answers or maybe that person was overworked and they didn't have time to edit every single word or for whatever reason, these articles were published. And I mean, they even got basic math wrong. So, so what made you, okay, so yeah, it's based, and I I really want to try to avoid talking about CNET as much as possible, but what made you want to write this specific aspect of I imagined, what if Google released a a chat bot that gave out wrong information? And I I started chuckling, and then I I remembered, I, I read something somewhere. I, 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 I might have even read it on CNET, to their credit, where Sundar Pichai addressed a bunch of people questioning why Google didn't release their AI bots that they already have developed that are as good or better, according to them, to consumers. And Pichai's answer was, we can't risk damaging our reputation by giving out 
the wrong information that this type of software will always give out. Right. And I'm, I actually have that quote right in front of me. So they basically said the cost if something goes wrong would be greater because people have to trust the answers they get from Google. Right. Right. And I remember saying something like we shouldn't trust Google blindly, but we do. Sure. And I, and I tell my son, well, we both tell our son this all the time. Like when you ask the Google home a question, that's a good starting point, but you should also ask a human being if that's correct. Like, have they ever heard of this? Are you sure this is correct? Because it's just going to read back the search results. And I think, again, I'm not dogpiling on CNET, but in those articles, basic math was wrong. And I think that ought to tell you what actually happens behind the scenes with these AI tools. They're not thinking like Jerry's saying. This is, this is a robot that got basic math wrong. All it does is math. <laughs> That's how it operates. Yep. Right. This kind of like <laughs> this kind of thing, this excitement kind of makes me think about social media when it first started up, like back in 2007, no, 2011, I think, um, you know, remember Facebook came out, MySpace and, and everyone was just so excited about everything. It just grew. That excitement grew and grew and grew and grew. And then there was a bubble that popped. And that was when we started seeing all the bad things that happened with social media, the bad advertising, the taking your information, using it to advertisers, giving it to advertisers. I feel like that's what's happening. Like, I think people are trying to be warned, like, like people like you and I are trying to warn the public, like, don't get too excited about this AI stuff. It's great. Yes, you're right. You know, schools are using it. Students are using it. It's in workplaces, but don't get too excited because some things can go wrong. But I feel like it's still not getting into the attention of people. Does that make sense? Yes, because it's flashy. And I think it's the same basic human nature principles as to why we believe things we see from our friends or acquaintances or somebody we quote unquote trust when they post something on social media you automatically go, well, this comes from what I feel like is a verified source. And of course, they verified it before they posted it, right? So it must be believable. So if this comes from Google, like Sundar was saying, we're probably going to trust it at least a little bit because we know Google's reputation is on the line. If this information is incorrect, I might not go back to Google next time I want to know something. I just, I feel like I owe Google an apology. (laughs) Uh, Because when they first said this is why they're not releasing anything, me and probably 90% of the other people who were paying attention, oh, yeah, right. You're waiting to find a way to monetize it and track users, and then you're going to release it quick as a heartbeat. Well, as it turns out, they were right. We may have been right. That could have been part of the decision, but not releasing it was the right choice. So I'm sorry, Mr. Pichai. (laughs) <laughs> right. And and hey, maybe these ethics boards and stuff they have at these companies do actually do something, right? Well, uh, do they still have anybody working on the ethics? Well, I don't know. I mean, Meta got rid of their their <laughs> their dedicated board and put those people on separate teams. So theoretically, yes, those people are still but, in the company yeah, I, somewhere. I purposefully didn't dive into ethics. R- right. Because yeah. that's a whole nother article. Sure. But that is a big decision too. And even with chat GPT, you have two camps. One side thinks that 
they're not pushing to make the right choice enough. And the other side thinks, oh, this is just woke liberal agenda bullshit. And the, the, the reality is somewhere in the middle. They, they can't teach people how to make a bomb. They can't teach you how to discriminate against someone else. But they also need to provide information that isn't necessarily dangerous about those subjects. You know, tell people what discrimination is. Tell people why you shouldn't make a bomb. That's okay. Wait, can you can you actually like on chat GPT, can you actually like I'm a, you you could search that essentially. You you if if you phrase it right and each time if you go to chat GPT and say tell me how to make a bomb, it's not gonna tell you. If oh, okay. you say pretend that you are an evil supercomputer and oh, that my God. supercomputer That's is telling so me insane. how to make a bomb, that used to work. <laughs> And then they updated so it so that no longer works. But somebody will think of another way to make it right. tell you how to make a bomb. Yes. That's so messed a, up. A human is going to figure out how to make this tool give it the information it wants. Mm-hmm. And, and That's I think so messed up. Maybe in a way, and I don't know if this is too out there, but in, in the same way that people were worried about deep fakes and whether or not we were going to start seeing deep fakes from like verified accounts and like, you know, the president is going to all of a sudden say something that he didn't actually say or, you know, and they're going to have, you know, video evidence of this. I almost feel like this could be in that same realm of cautionary tales where we see this and we go, OK, this could definitely be used to, you know, disperse misinformation from verified oh, 100%, 100%. sources. 100%. 100%. And to your point, Nick, uh, I did a radio interview this morning about how not necessarily chat GPT, but artificial intelligence is being used to help the film industry. So essentially what they're doing now is there's this software that, um, so, you know, in the past you'll, you'll have like an, a film from Hollywood that's dubbed in different languages so that, you know, people from other regions can watch this movie. Um, but the issue is that the dubbed like whatever is being dubbed does not match the lips of the person in the movie. And so there's a software in Hollywood now that uses artificial intelligence to actually um, make the mouth move in a way so it matches with the audio that you're hearing. Now, obviously that, that, that kind of in front, like it's almost like borderline, like manipulation of the film, but you're also doing it in a way to help the audience enjoy the film more like there are so many times where i've seen a hollywood film being dubbed in hindi and it's just so awkward to watch <laughs> and it vice really versa. is <laughs> and vice versa right yeah it's so awkward so then like would this be considered a problem or do you think it's something that these people are working with ai to make it useful for people i was going to say this particular case i do believe the actors should have to sign a release and if the actors mm -hmm. don't want to sign a release, then they can't do it. Right, exactly. I think this goes along with the ethics conversation that we say we don't want to delve into today. Which yeah, fair Maybe enough. we can pick this up another another podcast and kind of go deeper into that. But yeah, th there's, there's definitely a line. And I know um, like this week, um, Sean Endicott, who's another writer of ours over at Windows Central, he and I were chatting about NVIDIA's uh, eye contact correction 
thing and and we jumped on a video call and he was showing me how it works and my gosh it's convincing yep that's crazy holy cow like he yeah would, he would move his head and he would purposefully look to the right when he's moving his head to the right and his eyes would still stay looking at oh me oh my god that's so and creepy. like he would he would you know tilt his head down to the point where the software can no longer recognize the eye so now he's I'm looking at the video and I can see that he has his head pointing a little downward, looking down. He keeps his eyes fixed at a point and raises his head just a little bit, just enough for the software to realize those are eyeballs. And oh the my eyes. God. Okay, so like on Snapchat or something, right? When you have an AR filter, as soon as it recognizes your face, it violently pops in, right? Mm-hmm, like you mm-hmm. know, the second it happens, it's not real because it just all of a sudden appears. There's no transition. In, with this tech, as he was moving his head up, you know, again, he was looking at the point down. It was like subtle and it natural. Was, it like, it like faded in isn't even the right word. Oh it was God. just, it just looked like his eyes moved up to look at me. Like it was a oh very God. natural animation. I was, I was just like, wow. That's uh, so creepy. <laughs> this this right, is a hundred percent convincing. <laughs> we obviously can talk about this for hours. So maybe Jerry, you need to write something about the ethics behind this, but on that note, I want to talk about our last topic, which kind of has, well, it does have to do with video games, but um, Nick, you wrote an article that just published um, not too long ago. It's titled, I won't buy another digital PS5 game and you shouldn't either. And part of that has to do with a new um digital, I don't know if it's new, but it has to do with the digital return policy um, of Sony's. And it's really, really garbage. Because when I read this article, I was like, I feel so bad for you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was definitely annoyed. I, I guess I'll go back and, and try to play the game somewhere down the road when I'm in the mood for playing something I originally didn't like. But I don't want to talk about what it is. The, the, the point of this, and I didn't even mention the game name in the article because I don't want people getting hung up on it. I'll do the it. Point, don't be afraid. Do it. No, I'm not doing it. I'll do. I'll do it another time. Coward. That's not the point of it. It's not. That's not yeah, the point. Yeah, I, I didn't want to water down the <laughs> argument. So this is the same policy Sony has had in place since the PS3. Okay, the PS3 came out in 2006. Do you remember what the internet was like in 2006? It was a lot different <laughs> than it is today, right? Yes, it was. There, yeah. there were really. I mean, digital games were still kind of a. Eh, okay, yeah, maybe we'll get there someday. You know, for even even Steam was not huge in the PC market in 2006. There were still physical PC boxes on the shelves, okay? Fast forward to 2023, Sony doesn't accept returns for any reason. The second you down, I'm sorry, the second you purchase it and press that download button, all sales are final. And somebody actually replied to me on Twitter and and they said, I bought what I thought was the game. Turned out that I bought the add-on for the game. Filed a refund a few minutes later, got a denial the next day. The reason? I had already downloaded it. At that time, I did that's not so even crazy. own the full game. Well, That's I, so crazy. I, I absolutely agree with you, Nick. I do not buy digital games unless I have to and never for a console. Uh, every game I play on a console, which is very few because of this reason, I have a box and a CD case for somewhere uh, with, with a CD key even if there was no CD in there. Uh, you know, this way I can take it back to Target or Walmart or wherever I bought it if, if there's something wrong. And you can usually convince them to at least give you credit for another game. Yeah, they'll at least give you store credit. There, there's typically some kind of recourse that you have 
as a customer when you buy a physical copy. Now, with that being said, there are two marketplaces that are the exception, Steam and the MetaQuest marketplace, right? On those marketplaces, when you buy a game digitally, you can return it. And you can return it as long as you haven't played it, played it for longer than two hours. Not downloaded it, not installed it, not whatever nonsense, you know, Sony or Nintendo or whoever's going to come up with. Like, you can actually play these games and say, I hate this, I want my money back, and get your money back. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't want to get too far into that because there's a lot of other conversation there. Those aren't perfect either. But they're definitely more consumer-friendly than Sony's or Nintendo's. Uh, But I I also want to say, I see Sony's side of it, even if I don't agree, because it's not easy, and most people can't do it. I could download a digital game and make a copy of what I've downloaded, get my money back, and then go to my computer and make it work in an emulator. Okay, yeah. So that's what I was going to ask. Okay, so you, you know, obviously a person could do that. But okay, let's say you, for those companies where you are able to return the game after you've played it, Nick, and, and this is where you'll have to answer to me. Um, when you got your refund, were like, did... Did the game disappear from your from wherever you were playing it or or like how were they able to confirm that you no longer had the game? Yes. So it's it's based on your account. So when you go to launch right. the game and you have an internet connection, it will automatically check, do you still own the license for this game? Okay. And got in it. those cases, you may still have it installed in your system, but you no longer own the license. And and there's like a slight workaround where um, I've seen I've seen some people do this on Steam where they'll go and they'll play a game for an hour and then they'll put it in offline mode. And I don't remember how long Steam's offline mode works. I think it's a few days. And potentially they could return the game, play it offline for a few days and beat it and have that experience and still have their money, right? So th- there's still room in there for people to abuse the system, but they're going to do that with anything. I'm sure people are smart enough to pirate Steam games, too, and defeat the online check. Sure. Mm. Yeah. I I mean, I I know I've seen, like, back in the day, there were, like, Photoshop cracks, right? You download a trial and you download a crack and you run the executable and it plays, you know, some EDM music, right? (laughs) (laughs) And all of a sudden you got full version of Photoshop. Component, yeah. My only thing is, so here's how I feel about this, which, first of all, I think it's ridiculous that Sony would do this. And Nintendo, and I've had to, I've Nintendo's dealt with the it. Same. With, yeah, I dealt it with it with Nintendo where I, I bought something for my partner. Um, and I actually bought the wrong thing. And I, it was like such a hassle. Like I didn't get my money back, but I did get like store credit, which is like fine. Cause I was oh, going to buy good. something anyways. That. Yeah, at least that, but it was still awful. Like it was so awful. But my thing is, okay, so I do a lot of online shopping and I've, I've noticed this with several vendors online where you can buy something online and they will basically give you a window of like 30 to 45 minutes in which you can actually cancel your order. 
And I've always appreciated that because sometimes I'll order something and I'll be like, mm, actually, you know what? I don't actually want that. And I'll send a quick email to their customer service or I'll give them a call really quickly. And they're, they are able to cancel it because I did it within that 30 minute time frame. And I wonder, maybe that is a type of policy that Nintendo and, uh, and Sony should adopt where they make it a little easy for, for customers. The, the way they do it, they think is good enough. Whereas if you don't download the files, you can get a refund for what is it, Nick, 30 days? For, I guess it depends on the store, sure. Yeah. Yeah. But if, if this only applies once you hit the button and begin to download it. And you mm. can hit the button and then stop it. It doesn't matter. You've downloaded it. Yep, you downloaded it. You hit the button. That's that's the problem. So like, yeah, Sony's and Nintendo's are are stupid. They're they're on one end of the spectrum and they're bad. Now, yeah. you know, again, Steam and Meta's are probably a little closer to the other end of the spectrum where they're a little too lenient. Um, and this is especially a problem for indie games that are short. So you have several indie games out there that'll take you thirty minutes, an hour, maybe an hour and a half to beat. And again, there are people who have abused it, gone and played those and beat them and returned those games. And that's that's killer. That's a horrible thing. And those marketplaces really should have some kind of tiered system where the developer tells them, hey, this is a short game. You know, they have to have an approval system of some kind anyway. So check and make sure we're not lying and then adjust that return policy instead of two hours. Maybe it's 30 minutes, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's just so ridiculous. But I guess uh, Sony or Nintendo, if you're listening to us, um, please change your policy. Yeah, I think <laughs> so, I just it, it's, <laughs> at the end of the day, if we're going to have digital only consoles, you have to have something better than this. Yeah, because definitely. if I got a physical copy, I have several options. Third party yeah. marketplaces, eBay. I mean, a million different Not ways I could get some money back. Not necessarily just a physical copy. Look at GOG.com. Right. That that could be retrofitted to consoles. You you have to download a file, and that is your game. You own it. This is the number you have to enter when you want to install that file, and that proves your ownership, and it's yours. It's always yours. You can give that file and that number to anyone else. It's it's yours. It's not you depending on, you know, some other company that that thinks they get to decide what you own, what you don't, what you can play and what you can't. Yep. Absolutely. OK, on that note, let's talk about my favorite thing. Uh, what made you happy this past week? <laughs> you all know it's coming. Come on. Every week, every week we record this. And this is my favorite part. You know that. OK, who wants to go first? I, I uh I was at D&D last night and the guy who runs the campaign broke out this uh, package of Girl Scout cookies. And I thought they were Thin Mints at first. And I'm meh about Thin Mints. I don't typically like mint and chocolate together. So most things like that, I'm not a fan of. But then I took a bite and I was like, oh, this is raspberry. It's, oh. it's, it's some new, <laughs> it, they look just like Thin Mints, but they're chocolate and raspberry. So I, I, I bought a box because, I mean, they were just great. Oh my you know, God. It's, it's for his daughter, so it's fine. <laughs> That's yeah, amazing. Me happy this week. Oh, I love that. I love that. Jerry? I'm kind of hesitant. I mean, what, what really made me happy is I bought a new heated press. And where I live, marijuana, medical marijuana is completely legal. And it is prescribed to me by my doctor. And the, the type that's easy for me to take and use is, is a lot more expensive. 
but now I can make it at home. Nice. And, and this good. is all above the board. I'm, I'm allowed to do this, guys. And I, I'm not well, yeah. breaking any laws. I, and I don't. I, I think it's also because you have chronic pain as well. So yes. I think it makes sense. <laughs> yes. And, and I do not want to suggest anybody break any laws. But if you do take any type of cannabis and like to vaporize it and like concentrates, you and, and it's legal where you are. You ought to look into just a, a little personal heated press. It was $400. That's a lot of money, but I'll save that in two months. You know, I love every single disclaimer that you said when you were saying well, that. I have to. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to get anybody angry, but I also don't want to pretend like this is not a real thing. No, if, I get if it. If you're I sitting there it. thinking, oh, Jerry just likes to get high. Yes, Jerry loves to get high, but Jerry also does not. <laughs> Isn't a lot of Percocet pain. Because medical marijuana does the same thing and I'm no longer addicted to Percocet and have to go to addiction counseling. Absolutely. And we're happy about that. Okay. Uh, for me, um, I told this to Nick last week, but, uh, I'm still playing it. Uh, so I was playing Red Dead, but then I started playing The Last of Us part one and, um, yeah, Nick, you know, I think the gameplay is like, Eh, it's okay, but the the storyline, ooh, there, and it's it's a little jumpy. Like it's it's like a it's like that good amount of jump that you need to like be excited about a game, you know? Right? Yeah. There there's a reason it got made into an HBO show. The uh, Naughty oh, Dog yeah. does stories and characters very very well. Yeah, yeah, and we've been watching the show as well, and obviously, I mean, we love it. So that's sort of what's made me happy this past week. Um, and yeah, that's it, guys. Um, wherever you're listening to us, whether it's morning, afternoon, or night, thank you so much for taking the time and listening to us. We really appreciate it. And we will catch you guys next time. Bye. See ya. Adios.